really, summer is this time to get away, to go someplace and explore, to do something new, to kind of gain significant memories, right? I mean, I am still carrying memories like this from this past summer, in particular, uh, uh, memories that I have with Jenny and our getaway to Yosemite. Um, I know, I know, I know. For seven years, you all have been telling me how great it is, how magnificent, how soul-stirring it is to be on the valley floor and to stand before these behemoth rock formations and waterfalls. I heard it all from you people, right? And I also, I've seen those Ansel Adam pictures too. I, I'm not dumb to those, right? I even saw movies, you know, like Free Solo, depicting Alex Honnold's climb of El Capitan. But let me be honest here. I still hesitated to go because I was thinking, it couldn't be that great. Nothing is that great. Can it be worth me taking my precious vacation times when I've seen the pictures? I've watched the movies already. Why would I want to spend money, my least favorite activity? I couldn't have been more wrong. Yeah, okay. Because good thing Jenny heard all of those stories from all of you, and she insisted that we went, and guess what? We went, right? And I was dumbfounded, especially in front of El Capitan. I mean, nothing could have done full justice to staying right there in front of El Capitan. Nothing could have done justice to like the sights and the sounds and the landscape that like filled all the way to the periphery of my vision. Nothing could have done justice to the size of this thing that had me marveling that I had to use like telescopes to see climbers on its face. You see, the best depictions from all of you, the best pictures that I had seen in Ansel Adams, the movies on the flat screen with like surround sound, they were samplings of El Capitan. El Capitan was the true and better version of any report you've given, any picture that I had seen, any movie I had watched. But that dynamic isn't just true for me. This also holds true for you. I mean, I could show you pictures of Fenway in Boston. You could watch movies like Fever Pitch, depicting Fenway and Red Sox fever. You could even believe my stories of being at Fenway and how it is the best, most emotional thing you could do to see the Red Sox beat those darn Yankees. And actually being there and taking it in, even if you're not a fan of baseball. It is a mecca. But actually being at Fenway, taking it in, is the true and better version of any of those things I could give you. Now, I bring this up because this same dynamic is at play with Jesus in the Old Testament. When we encounter a person in the Old Testament, oftentimes they are only a foreshadowing, a sampling of Jesus, of how Jesus will do better than any good or triumph that they had. Or Jesus will do the opposite in glory of any evil or tragedy they had, and he would do it for our good. 
That's why how, that's how the Old Testament tends to function in relation to Jesus. So much so that Jesus, when he was resurrected, would tell his disciples this. He said, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus is saying something incredibly radical here. He is saying that the whole Old Testament spoke about him and pointed to him, not just in prophecies and hopes, but also in and through the Peter people and the patterns of God's activities. These, Jesus said, are mere samplings, reports, pictures, movies, foreshadowings of the true and better version coming in Jesus himself. That's how the late Timothy Keller put it. Now, maybe that seems a bit far-fetched, or it feels like we may be trying to read into something that's actually not there, or maybe picking up, you know, similarities or coincidences more than anything else. And that's actually, honestly, how I responded when I first encountered this a, a number of years ago. And so if you're like me, like the past me, and skeptical about this enterprise, then you're going to want to stick around for the whole summer and see what you might not have picked up before. And even if you're more like the present me and you're intrigued with kind of these theological geeky kinds of things, okay, you're going to want to stick around as well to see these internal connections that are in the scriptures, to see the connections that will give you an experience like I had standing in front of El Capitan, like you would have if you were sitting in a seat in Fenway. This soul-stirring marvel of Jesus being the true and better of so much that we encounter in the Old Testament, so much that we can feel and think when we encounter these people in the Old Testament. And that's why our summer sermon series is true and better. Where we're going to look at the Old Testament figures, look at some of these stories, and then we're going to cast our sights forward into the future, into the New Testament, and how they intentionally pick up on the language of the Old Testament to show how Jesus is the true and better version of that. Does that sound like a deal? Okay. So here, let's start with the very first one. Adam. Right? We're going to see three things with Adam. The story of testing, the fallout from the testing, and Jesus as the true and better Adam. So what I'd like you to do, grab your Bible, open your Bible app on your phone, and find your way to Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Um, If you reached for one of those blue Bibles, Genesis is the very first book of the Bible, so you might not be surprised it's on page 2, right? And with the story open in front of us, let's listen and follow along carefully as Felix Ogunmukun is going to read it for us. Felix, I butchered your last name again, and I practiced all the time. Felix, come on up here. Come on up here. Reading from Genesis chapter 3, from verse 1 to 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, 
We may eat of the fruit in the tree, of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the trees, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sealed fig leaves together and made themselves loin clothes. This is the word of God. Thanks, Felix. Ogun Mukun. Better, right? Thank you. Now, this story is probably somewhat familiar to you. Even if you're not all that familiar with the Bible, I mean, you've seen it in art, or you've used that cliche of forbidden fruit that actually comes out of this story, or you're vaguely familiar with, like, Eve, an apple, and a snake. Um, but don't let that sense of familiarity, that kind of sense of fairy tale, put you to sleep with this story of testing. Adam and Eve lived in a paradise of the garden, working to bring out more of the potential for beauty uh, and enjoying each other without conflicts, enjoying the world without ruptures with their work or the creation. You see, they lived in this garden in an innocent state, a goodness, a naivety, if you will, in not being exposed to the negative of evil, the negative shaping forces of evil, nor having kind of a demonstrated track record of the positive in righteousness. That also means in the sprawling orchard, covering acres, that the fruit, yes, the fruit, not the apple, from that one single fruit tree stood the test of their innocence with God's prohibition of eating it. Now, why would God do this in the first place? Well, love and relationship isn't real unless it's freely chosen. And this is something that Satan exploits. And he is, as he is embodied in a talking serpent... He begins by throwing doubt on what actually God had said about the tree. And then in response to Eve's expanding of God's prohibition from even touching it, Satan throws this in for her. He says, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The key to unlocking this is, is knowing what's going on here. All of the yous in there are in the plural. And so Satan is speaking to both Adam and Eve to construct this test of their innocence. It's a two-pronged test. One prong of this test is what they actually believe about God and his love. Because this, the, the serpent casts God's love in very spurious ways here. The serpent suggests that God loves them, yes, but with an envy. Because he withholds from them. And to serve God means servility. Because he demands far too much and gives far too little. 
And who among us has, doesn't know this feeling about God? Right? I mean, I do. And this is telling us that that feeling isn't from God, or, or even just ourselves, that it's somehow Satan stirring our emotional pot. And so sure, feel those feelings, but also recognize that there is another sinister hand stirring that pot within us to cast that kind of doubt on God and the kind of love he has for us. The other prong of this test says, what is possible apart from God? Because the serpent says they will be able to extend beyond human limitations. They will be able to be familiar with the why behind good and blessing and the why behind evil and disaster. And who among us doesn't want that power as well? I mean, I do. And this is telling us that that wish isn't from God or even ourselves. It's, it's again, Satan stirring our emotional pot so that we can have more than we are able as finite human beings. And so, sure, ask the questions, probe the mystery, but at some level, we also have to recognize that we're not going to know all areas of mystery until God shares it with us. And he keeps areas of mystery to himself without sharing it to us. And this whole test, this whole test isn't a slam-dunk, no-brainer decision to reject. No matter the kind of language that's being used here or the familiarity that maybe strike us, this is an actual test. I mean, we may look at this test as like some horror movie test where every victim faces a test of making very, you know, not making terrible decisions, right? You know, decisions to walk out alone at night with no one else around. You know, opening that closet door to discover what's in there. And, you know, we internally scream like, no! Right? But we only do that because we know what's going to happen. And we have a viewpoint that they don't have. This is supposed to arouse deep empathy within us because who doesn't recognize what is going on with them and empathize with them and feel it? The same desires, the same quandary that we have. And so this test, we're supposed to feel like this is more like, you know, a poor man who with the choice of stealing or having his kids go hungry. Or a woman faced with the choice between leaving an abusive situation or sticking around for the kids. This is a gut-wrenching test taking them to the very edges of their willpower and discernment. And it's a test that they end up choosing poorly because they eat from the delicious fruit and look to the promises of what it brings apart from God. They just blow it. Or if I could put it a little bit differently, Adam faced the test and he failed the test. The result? Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Their eyes were opened, and they grabbed the largest leaves known in Palestine, these fig leaves, and they fashioned aprons for themselves to cover their shame and their guilt and to make up for what was lost in their innocence. 
But that was merely an ep the epicenter of a devastating quake into the very fabric of reality that went out. Moving from Adam and Eve to the rest of the cosmos and through the generations of humanity. And what was that, what was that devastating quake? Death. Death was unleashed. People would be separated from God. Separated from each other. From the whole material world. And even from themselves culminating in the soul separation of the body from the soul, which is physical death. And that idea of death and separation would be at the core of everything else. And so everything that we see, everyone that we see, has some version of death operative in it, in decay and disease and the eventual end of it. Paul frames it this way. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. Sin came into the world through Adam. And death came into this reality through it. And it spread, forgive the analogy, like COVID. Through the whole fabric of reality. And it spread to everyone, everywhere, in every time. And they experienced this death and separation from God schisms with each other, being at odds with the creation and animals, and even the internal breakdown and the physical deterioration to the point of our death. You see, Adam, he faced the test, he failed the test, and so passes death on to us all. That is what is the root of what is wrong with us. This is why we have the heartache we do and carry the shame that we do and feel the pain of the intractable wounds that we have and the problems that we carry around. Sin is at the root of that thing, underneath that thing in us, wreaking havoc of death in us. This is at the root of what's wrong with us. Not our upbringing, our psychology, our economic levels, our race, our identity and sense of self, or what we've been inflicted with in this world. And this is what is at the root of what is wrong with our world. This is why disasters happen. Diseases spread. And stabbings occur in university towns along with all the other violence that people figure out how to do. This is why our very favorite goldfish are eaten by nasty raccoons who are evil. They are evil. They wear masks. And so this is why I had to do this to my pond. I had to put a screen on my pond, relocate plants outside, and pump the water through it. That doesn't even look like a pond anymore, does it? That's what I had to do to keep evil and death at bay. But I'm kind of sure they're going to try to get in there again. They already have. And that's why some of you have had more drastic solutions than that, of enclosures around it and electric fences to put around it. Death 
has been unleashed through Adam. It has poisoned our blood, and it runs through the veins of everyone and everything in this world, along with the world itself. I mean, I know this is an ancient story and all, but doesn't that ring true to some of your experience in life? I mean, can't you see it in you? That's something that lurks underneath the thing that you're so very troubled by that you just can't shake. Don't you feel it when you look around the world and see death unleashed in so many various forms with something underneath driving it that all of our efforts and all of our initiatives and all our creativity have not been able to unseat? And that means the solution is beyond our education levels, and I like education, but this is beyond that. It's beyond our grasp of science to kind of fix. It's beyond our money to buy. We need an anti-atom with anti-venom for our poisoned blood. Paul agrees and he says this, he says, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who, listen very carefully, was a type of the one who was to come. Notice very carefully what he's saying there. He's saying Adam was a type of the one who was to come. A type. A scriptural foreshadowing for you and for me and for people in the Old Testament. That is, everything that we understand and associate with Adam, we're supposed to see how there is a true and better version of one to come. One that is a photo negative of Adam's failure and what he gave us. And we don't have to imagine what this photo negative might look like because Paul actually draws it up for us. He says this, he says, Therefore, listen really carefully, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men and women, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men and women. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. There's a contrast in here. He's saying that is, Adam faced the test and failed the test. He trespassed by stepping over that line that God had drawn to not eat the fruit, and he disobeyed God. That's how Adam failed the test. On the other hand, Jesus also faced the test, but he passed the test. He faced the very same test that Adam and Eve faced, primarily in the wilderness when Satan tempted him in the same way that he had tempted Adam and Eve, but even more generally with his whole life. In the face of that test, Jesus acted righteously in conforming his thoughts, his actions, his words around God, and so he obeyed God. That's how Jesus passed the test. And the result? Paul sums it up like this. He says, So that as sin reigned in death, 
grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Adam faced the test and failed the test and so passed sin reigned in death, just like we had talked about. On the other hand, Jesus faced the test and passed the test and so passed grace reigning through righteousness leading to eternal life. Jesus passes grace onto us. Grace being in being declared righteous by faith in Jesus. Joining us with him and giving Jesus grade from his test on life. And grace that then leads us on to a new quality of life. A new outcome of life in eternal life. All of this goes to say, listen very carefully, Jesus is the true and better Adam because he faced the test and passed the test and so passes grace on to us. Uh, think of it this way. Uh, my oldest son is going to go to grad school in Boston next year, and so he needs a place to live there. Um, and he just, so happened to relo- he just so happened to locate a promising apartment there on Beacon Street near his school. And now getting an apartment in Boston is on another level than it is getting here in Davis, Okay. It's more competitive. It's much more expensive. The landlords are East Coast demanding and Boston indifferent to your feelings, right? All because there are so many people vying for so few quality apartments. And that's why my son needed my credit score on his application. And so when that Beacon Street apartment in Boston was making a decision to lease an apartment... My credit score was the only one that mattered. They did not ask my son for it at all. Mine is the one that mattered. And you know what? He got it. Yeah. And according to him, and I take this in, thanks to dad's credit score, right? You see, for years, I faced the test of paying bills and managing my credit. And I passed the test with a pretty good credit score. But then, here's the key, I was able to pass that grace on to my son to let him have and enjoy what he couldn't have had on his own with that apartment. See, that is what Jesus has done for us. He passed the test. And so he passes grace on to us, for us to enjoy what we couldn't have on our own. Forgiveness, freedom with God, life in an eternal quality, and even outcome. And that means the misery that we feel with what is so wrong with us, what is so wrong with our world, is not the final word on the matter. It's not even the ultimate word on the matter. That misery is only a pointer to Adam and what he has generously given us. So don't you dare let that misery set the tone for how you think and how you feel and how you see your life in this world. On the one hand, let's not get so fixated on what is wrong 
and the various manifestations of death surrounding us to the point that we end up wallowing or bemoaning all of it in kind of a defeatist mentality and down spiral. On the other hand, let's not just get so out of touch with the misery that we end up ignoring it or anesthetizing ourselves with whatever thing we seek to do to take our mind off things. With Jesus as the true and better Adam, we can face that misery. We can face it. We can look directly into its eyes of sin and death in us and around us, and we can do without flinching. And in that stare, we can shed tears of grief over what should have been by God's own design of goodness to be there. But also in that stare, we can have a twinkle in our eye because of Jesus and the grace he passes on to us. Grace to face the tests that we have, the temptations that we know of, knowing that Jesus' score is what's on our scorecard. And so we can admit our sin and our flaws and our emotional tangles to get the help we need because Jesus' score is on our scorecard. What do we have to lose? We can go to celebrate recovery. We can get to a counselor. We can get some accountability to experience transformation and freedom. We can call on God for help without the fear of, you know, him getting us or holding it against us. We can even fail in being just boneheaded or in trying something new to overcome, and then we confess that sin to find forgiveness and fresh energy to keep going. And there is enough grace for hope for ourselves and for this world that our bad will be turned good one day, and our good will turn into glory. And the best is yet to come. You see, Jesus is the true and better Adam because he faced the test and he passed the test and so passes grace on to us. Don't settle for the misery of death because that was given to us by Adam facing the test and failing the test. Settle into Jesus. Receiving by faith what he passes along in forgiveness of your sin and grace by facing the test and passing the test. Go to God and invite Jesus to come into your life to forgive you and to lead you in life. And then, just keep settling your heart into Jesus, won't you? Won't you? Grab your heart even and say, heart, see, look at Jesus. That is what's on my scorecard right now. Now I can admit what is wrong with me to get the help I need with my sin and my wounds and my tangles. And now I can expect God to come and help me and keep going. Why don't we pray and ask God to come into this moment, shall we? 
God, I confess that so often I can just be disheartened by the misery, the misery of me that no one else sees, the misery of our world that just feels like it's crowding in on me. I can just down spiral. And so God, maybe others of us feel this way as well. Would you give us new hearts to see and believe? Would you give us new eyes to perceive that Jesus, you are the true and better Adam. And so we can look that misery right in the eye and we can cry over it and grieve over it, but we can also have a twinkle in the midst of the tears knowing that you face the test, pass the test, and so we have grace. Your scar is on our scorecard. You treat us as sons and daughters, nothing less. And so give us boldness of faith to trust you for this. Settle our hearts a little bit more deeply into Jesus this morning, that we might be changed by the power of your spirit that we might find new freedom and forgiveness and energy to press on. We ask that you would do this for the sake of our joy, because we want to be joyful despite everything. We ask you that you would do it for the sake of your glory and that people would see you through us and you would be put on display. We ask this in the name of Jesus, the true and better Adam. And everyone gathered said, Amen. Just right from your chairs, would you stand?